not for all my heart for the whole of this day, but somehow or other there seems to be such a lot that was for and against, and one of the things that stopped me from speaking about it earlier was the fact that so often we had spoken about Jacob. And I won't really say simply to trace perhaps the side that we've never traced in the life of Jacob much, and that is what the grace of God made Jacob. We've often spoken about Jacob before he met God, before he ever came to that tremendous crisis at the Ford Jabbok, where he wrestled with God, and where God touched him in a way that was eternal, a way that not only for the rest of his life here was to leave a permanent mark upon him, but in a way which was for all eternity to affect the purpose and the work of God. One of the most wonderful things about Jacob, for us who know the Lord, is the way that it displays and illustrates the sovereignty of God. It is a wonderful thing to know that we have been chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Unless we have some knowledge of the sovereignty of God, in his saving of us and calling us and keeping us, we shall never be able to really withstand the many things that will hit us in this life. Jacob, because he was Jacob, is a glorious example of the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God met with, in some ways we would say, a singular instance of a complex personality. Someone so involved, so difficult, so deceitful, so sinful, so involved, so hopeless by human standards, facing, as it were, the sovereignty of God and the purpose of God. God in his sovereignty had chosen to make such a one as Jacob the focal point of his whole eternal purpose. That is, we can have Abraham and we can have Isaac, but unless we have Jacob, we can have no children of God. Jacob was the final point in God's dealings with those three men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in his producing of a people. So we have here something which at one and the same time is a marvel and a great comfort. On one side we find the sovereignty of God and we find the purpose of God. On the other side we find the one God has chosen a hopeless case by human standards. I don't think there is need to dwell much, as we often have done, upon what Jacob was. Suffice it to say that Jacob was a deception. 
From beginning to end, he was a complete deception. His life was a lie. Everything about him was deceit. When he was born, as he came out of his mother's womb, he clasped hold of his elder brother. He was one of twins. And from that moment he was given the name of supplanter or deceiver. And this name was an apt illustration of the kind of man Jacob was going to be. For he deceived his brother, he deceived his father, he deceived his uncle. In all his dealings with those nearest and closest to him and those farthest away, Jacob deceived all. In every single instance, Jacob came out on top. It was not only that he deceived people, but it paid big dividends. He came out with a birthright. He came out with a blessing. He came out with much wealth, much in the way of increased flock. Beginning he had nothing, at the end he had everything. This was the fruit of Jacob's deception. Yet, over it all we find the grace of God. And the grace of God forbearing with one so totally incompatible with the character of God. Someone who was a contradiction to all that God was, to all that God wanted to all that God really was like. A contradiction to the kind of person we would say God would use. He was a contradiction, completely incompatible with all that we understand to be the character and the mind and the intention of God. Yet God took hold of a man like Jacob. And through his long life, he forbore with him until he came to a point where he was absolutely and utterly devastated. If we mean business with the Lord, we get very swiftly to the key of the Christian life. This Christian life into which we come by birth, by spiritual birth, is a life in which we stand to be utterly devastated. There is no other Christian life but the Christian life that is produced by the devastation of God. In other words, we all have a nature, a kind of life, which can only be described as Jacob life. It has all the qualities of Jacob. It has the characteristics of Jacob. It has the... Uh, drive of Jacob, the tenacity of Jacob. We all have such a nature. That nature has got to be utterly devastated if God is going to really get anything at all. The Christian life is not simply the consecration of that kind of character. Or the, as it were, devoting of that kind of nature and character to the service of God to the help of others. God devastates that kind of nature in order to produce a new nature and a new life and a new character. Sooner or later, if we mean business with God, we have to come to such a point of devastation. 
It is not always necessarily all at one go. In some lives it is. We come into the deepest experience of the cross, which absolutely leaves an indelible mark upon us. For others of us, it is a much more slow process. But whatever it is, however it comes, the principle is the same. That before ever Israel can be produced, and all that God means to do with Israel, there's got to be the devastation of what we are. Now, let us get that very clear, very simply in these words, to say that just these few words. This should be a great comfort to us. However involved you are, however difficult you are, however sinful you are, however holy and compatible with God you are, however distant from God you are in your ways and your character, whatever your history is, however impossible it seems that your case is before God. There is absolutely no ground for any one of us to feel that that is the end. God can take the most incompatible people and providing they are prepared to go on with him he will devastate all that which is incompatible. He will break all that which is a contradiction. And out of that devastation, out of that brokenness, will be produced a new kind of life and a new kind of character, a new kind of nature. One of the most remarkable facts in the story of Jacob is the change in the man before and after. In no other story is there a more vivid and more remarkable change than in this man Jacob. Before, he was everything which we can only describe as a deception. Afterwards, he became a man in the hand of God and a man taken up by God as a very real instrument to fulfill his promises and his purpose concerning his people. So this evening, we don't want to dwell so much upon what Jacob was, or really even what happened to Jacob at Jabbok. Many times we've spoken about that. We want to just speak or trace in the, uh, the word of God what the grace of God produced in Jacob. I might just say that when God deals with us at the cross, he drives us to it. We have such a deceptive nature, such a kind of two-faced nature, that we would never willingly come to this place of being devastated. We don't like the cross naturally, and that's quite normally. We don't like it. We don't wish to go through with such a sacrifice, to go through at such a cost. But God drives us to it. There comes a day when everything just means we've got to go over this fall. Everything is shutting us up to it. We feel that if, we, if something doesn't happen to us, then we shall die on the other side. But we can't go back. We can't escape. We've got to go through. 
This often happens in circumstances spiritually in our lives. This is the way God drives us into a deep experience of Christ crucified. By shutting us up, we can't go back, we can't escape, and yet somehow it's impossible to go on. That's the kind of thing God does to us when he's going to do something that he wills within us. He shuts us up. And he shuts us up to loneliness. For at such a point, no one can help us. No one can enter in. No one can really share our heart. No one can lift us. No one can comfort us. We are absolutely alone. This is the condition that God must have us in if he's going to do such a work. He shuts us up to such a loneliness. Sometimes we blame our brothers and sisters because they don't seem to be able to help us. They don't rush forward to help us. They don't seem to be able to comfort us. But God is himself standing between our brothers and sisters and ourselves. He is making us lonely. He is moting us round about in order that he might do a work in us. This we have to understand if he would understand what the Lord does when he's going to deeply work in our hearts. There can be nothing of real value to the Lord until there has been such a work of the cross. If Jacob had continued as Jacob, then there would have been no hope. The only point at which Jacob is mentioned in that wonderful list in the New Testament is when he had passed through the experience of judgment. Then it says, by faith, Jacob blessed and Jacob worshipped. That's the point God takes up Jacob. That is the point where God has indelibly engraved Jacob's name upon divine and sacred history. He has given him a place in the register of those who are in the land book of life. Those who are members of the city. Because he went through an experience which shattered him of everything. Broke him of everything. Devastated what he was. And produced a new man. That is why the scripture calls him afterwards Israel. No longer Jacob, but Israel. Israel is a prince with God. We would all like to be princes with God. And sometimes I fear one of the great tragedies amongst the Lord's people is that we try to be something when we're not anything. We can't be princes with God until we've gone through such an experience. There is nothing in our old nature that is royal until we've gone through such an experience. But when we've gone through that experience, something of a princely nature is produced. Something which we can only describe as Prince with God. Well, we trace through, we find one or two wonderful things. The first thing we find is this, that for the first time Jacob sees the face of God. He sees the face of God. When we see a person's face, it means we see their profile. We see the lines on their face. We see the expression of their face. Now, many of us don't like this. But it is perfectly true that our faces are a pretty good expression of our characters. 
What comes out on our faces is usually something inside. And that is why when we don't belong to the Lord, we begin to put a mask on our faces. We try to hide what we're really like. Somehow or other we just try to um, have that bland uh, mask upon our faces. And for many of us, when we come to the Lord, we don't want to betray ourselves, so we have the same little spiritual mask on our faces. This is not what is meant in the scripture by the face. The face is something which betrays a person's character. When we get older, certain lines come on our faces. And I am told that those who know most about these things, they can tell by the kinds of lines what kind of person you are. If you have lines that go up that way, you worry about certain things. If you have lines that go this way, you have a different type of character. But it's true. If you have lines down here that betray certain things, determination, or the lack of it, lines are a most remarkable thing. They tend to portray and express the kind of personality that's behind that face. That is why often when we meet some very old people who are without the Lord, they're appalled at what we see. Lines of harshness, lines of bitterness, lines that uh, no longer uh, portray anything beautiful. But we've also seen people who, though this body is fast going into the grave, have portrayed something and expressed something which can only be described as beautiful. Perhaps there are the lines of suffering. Perhaps there are the marks of suffering and pain. But there is a beauty about their face. There is a peace about their face. There is something which leaves a mark upon us. An impression is left with us. Jacob once saw the Lord standing above upon a ladder. This was when he was Jacob. He saw him afar off. He saw him as the link between heaven and earth. He saw angels ascending and descending upon that ladder. But he saw God only as a majestic figure afar off. When, when he went through this experience of the cross, he saw God, he said, face to face and lived. May I put it reverently? He saw the profile of God's face. He saw the lines of God. He saw the kind of character God has. He suddenly saw for the first time the kind of person God really is close up to. No longer just the figure of a very high in the heavens, standing as it were above a ladder. Now he saw him as he would look into a face of a loved one. Saw everything about that face. This was to leave a lasting impression you know, we, there are secrets about God, secrets about our Lord Jesus, about his character, about his ways, about his love, which will forever be locked to those who have no experience of the cross. You can only come into them by this costly way, and then they're strange ways. There are there are strange ways in which we come to know the Lord. Ways that, humanly speaking, we would not think were the rest. Yet God leads us along such ways, and each end, the end of each path, we find we've lost. 
the blood something more of the Lord. We've seen something more of the Lord that we never saw before. Israel saw the face of God. When he was touched, he saw the face of God. And he called the, play, the name of that place Penel, the face of God. This was to be an, a lasting impression upon him. Then again, I want you to note that the next altar he ever built, he called it God the God of Israel. Isn't that wonderful? God the God of Israel. For however much we may be comforted by the title of God the God of Jacob, this is a wonderful thing, that he built an altar and called it God, the God of Israel. What did he mean? He meant simply that through this experience that he had passed, Israel had been produced. A new nature, a new character had come. This new nature and this new character was going to be thoroughly tested. If you read these chapters, Jacob was, was brought now for the first time face to face with his own life and nature in his sons. All was to be reproduced in his sons, which had formerly and previously been within himself. God was the God of Israel. And by what he saw in his sons, and the things that his sons did to him, and he did the most terrible things to him, if you read the story, he began to learn that the only hope in the purpose of God and the work of God was a new nature. It could not have the old Jacob in it. Here was the old Jacob in his sons. And he was just wrecking everything, spoiling everything. In one case, it was righteous indignation in many ways, we would have said. Something terrible was done to their sister. And they rose up and they did, they destroyed the whole town by deceit. The very thing that Jacob before would have been party to. He now had to stand by helpless while his own sons took things into their hands and schemed and plotted and then destroyed a whole city. Later on, his, his beloved son, Joseph, son that he so adored, was to be sold by these brothers into slavery. And they would come back and deceive their father by telling him that uh, here was his coat soaked in blood. Doubtless he'd been torn to bits by some wild beast. Jacob was going to learn now in a new way that the only hope in the purpose of God and in the work of God was a new nature, Israel, Israel. This Israel, he learnt, was produced through the most tremendous crisis in his life, in which, as it were, God touched him at his strongest point and wrecked him. And when God had wrecked him, then he not only saw the face of God, but he began to that a new nature, a new life was the only thing that could possibly achieve anything in the purpose of God. So he builds an altar here and he calls this altar God, the God of Israel. Now I wonder when you and I have come to the Lord Jesus, how often we're always erecting altars to God, the God of Jacob. This is not possible. 
We may call upon the God of Jacob, but in the purpose of God and in the realization of that purpose, he is the God of Israel. God works not on the basis of, of a Jacob, but on the basis of an Israel. Not on the basis of what we are naturally, but of what we are by the grace of God in Christ. Always God has in view what we are in Christ. Every time God blesses you, he's doing it because of what he has in view. Always he has in view what you are in Christ. What there is of Christ. He never condones what is not of Christ. His grace covers it. He is known as the God of Jacob. But every fresh release of life, every provision, every deliverance is on the ground of what there is of the Lord Jesus in you and in me. He is the God of Israel. And then in chapter 35 you find that he is the God of Bethel. He calls it God, the God of the house of God. <coughs> What was it? Here we find the new thing comes in. God tells Jacob now to put away the foreign gods from amongst him, to put on new garments, and to go up to Bethel, and to there build an altar. And you know what happens? There is a complete clearing away of all those foreign gods. They put on new garments. They go up to Bethel, which means the house of God. And there, there is a new beginning. God ratifies what he did at Jabbok when Jacob comes to the house of God. Now let us be very clear in this matter. We may see the face of God when we come into an experience of the cross. And we may, further than that, we may begin to understand that it's got to be Christ in us, which is to be the basis of all God's dealings of all his blessing of us. But God will never ratify what he did in us at the cross until we come to the house of God. We have to put away every dividing thing, every other thing that claims any portion of our attention has to be put away. We have to put on new raiment, a new beginning as it were, a complete new devotion. And we have to give ourselves to what is meant by the house of God. When we give ourselves to the house of God or the family of God or whatever you like to call it, to one another in the Lord, God ratifies what he promised and what he began at Jabbok. He said at Jabbok, thy name no more Jacob but Israel. But that was all he said. When we come to Bethel, he says, thy name no more Jacob but Israel. I will make of thee a nation and accompany a nation. There is an extension. What God intended at Jabbok, he now ratifies at Bethel. Many of us have not only been saved, but we've actually come to Jabbok. But have we come to Bethel? If we have only come to Jabbok, then at present all we have is a knowledge of his face Oh, how glorious that is. And the knowledge of a new life, how wonderful that is. 
But we cannot be an integral part of the purpose of God till we come to that out. God's purpose is bound up with a body. We can only really be an integral part of the purpose of God when we're an integral part of that body. That means a very, very definite and decisive committal of ourselves to what that means. Maya meant something for Jacob. It meant that he was shut up with twelve sons who were all like he was before Jabbok. It wasn't that he just dealt with one person like himself. He dealt with twelve reproductions of himself. Even Joseph was no paragon of virtue. Quite obvious that Joseph was quite obnoxious in some ways the way he boasted and uh, talked loudly about uh, what God was showing to him. It was, it was all in the hands of Joseph, you see. Even Joseph was no power to Here was Jacob, shut up. The one he adored, Rachel, God. Now he's left with Leah and two handmaids who were always squabbling. And with all these sons that were just reproductions of himself. Now he was going to learn something very, very deep. Could he leave them? Would they leave him? Jacob's way through was never to disown one of them. But to cleave to them to the end. Till in the end they were a reunited family in Egypt. He never disowned one. He never disinherited one. Although if you read the story, they don't be sordid reading, sordid reading, what some of them did, what Reuben, his firstborn, did to him. Terrible things. What Simeon and Levi did to him. What Judah did to him. Oh, the things these men did. A sordid part of the Bible is the record of what these sons did to their father. And then all eleven joined them in the selling of their own brother Joseph. But you see, Jacob had come to a place where he was committed to the people of God. Now listen, these sons were the fathers of the nation. Disinherit any one of them and he disinherited a tribe of the people of God. His only way through was to cleave to them. His only way through was to let them make him a saint. He couldn't argue with them. He couldn't rebel against them. He couldn't force them. He could only learn from them. And I believe that Jacob learned some of the deepest and most bitter lessons of his life from these others. One place he says that they've almost brought his grey hairs down to the grave. It must have been many times he felt like that if you read through the story. But what was Jacob's being? He was just being himself. That's all. Seeing something of himself. He was committed to us, to the house of God. And so you see there's something very wonderful when we come to the end of Jacob's life. Very wonderful thing. 
Jacob has the ability to bless. It is a wonderful thing that Jacob blessed Pharaoh, for the scripture says, undoubtedly, the greater, the, the lesser is blessed of the greater. This simply meant that Pharaoh acknowledged Jacob as greater than himself. That greatness came through the devastation of Jabbok. It was the greatness of the character of Christ. A new character, a new life, a new nature produced and developed by being with others who are very difficult. The end was Jacob blessed, blessed Pharaoh. I always find it one of the a very moving part of the scripture when Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh was undoubtedly the head of the greatest civilization of that day. He was the pinnacle of everything. The excellence, the power of Egypt was unparalleled. And even to this day, their, their whole governance and system and buildings and monuments and everything else are a marvel to us. Yet that Pharaoh knelt, as it were, before Jacob to receive a blessing. When you receive a blessing in the East, in the ancient East, it was always as you did obeisance. It simply meant the Pharaoh himself did an unheard of thing and bowed himself before Jacob, to receive a blessing. Twice it is mentioned that Jacob blessed Pharaoh at the beginning of the ordinance and the end of the ordinance. He blessed him. This shows what God can do when the person goes the way of the cross. He can make us a blessing in, in the most remarkable way. Not just to one another, but he can make us a blessing to this world. In the most remarkable way, he can cause the world to, as it were, come to our feet and bow down, as Isaiah says in many places. Or as the Lord Jesus said to the church at Philadelphia, they shall come and shall bow down at my feet and shall worship. Those that were of the synagogue of Satan. What a thing! This is not that awful caricature of authority. It isn't this awful thing that is sort of iron-fisted, that just goes up by knocking others down. This is something which has come through meekness, a new quality in Jacob. This has come through brokenness, a new thing about Jacob. This has come through an altogether different kind of nature. And in the end, Pharaoh himself, by an inward intuition, recognizes this man is unbelievably great. I have no doubt that he recognizes that Joseph was produced by such a man. So we see Jacob blesses 
And he not only blesses the world, he blesses the people of God. He blesses Ephraim and Manasseh. So that these, the people of God, are blessed. How can you be a blessing to others? How often we are not a blessing, but we're a burden to one another. There are very few people who are a blessing to one another in the family of God, unfortunately. We're also bound up with ourselves, all wanting to get through this, done, that, the other. How can we ever be a blessing to anyone else? There are very few people who are a blessing. The people who are real blessing, benediction to one another, are the people who've been devastated. They've gone to the deepest experience of the cross, and in the, that crucible of fire, they've lost something. Something's been touched. Some drive, some force, some strength has been broken, never to return. It's shattered. Those people are always a blessing. You cannot speak with them, you cannot touch them, even in joy or in sorrow, when they're up or when they're down, they are a blessing. Sometimes some saints can be as great a blessing when they're down as when they're up. Because the blessing is something inside. It is real. It is a character to be beloved. And I want you also to note, note that Jacob not only was able to bless Pharaoh and able to bless the people, but also, it is recorded, Jacob worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. This is a key to worship. Worship is not that self-determined, self-energized thing. Real worship comes when people have been touched at the greatest point of their strength and rest. When that has happened, they begin to worship. There is a, it is a very wonderful thing to read in Genesis and in Hebrews. The very last thing recorded about Jacob is that he rose up on his bed and worshipped. This kind of man, so deceitful, so involved, so incompatible with God, was in the end found to be someone delighting God, giving God all that he desired, worshipping him, leaning on the top of a star. You know what that meant? Where he'd been touched had developed through the years. It says in the first part, he lived. But the last thing is, he's on a star. Where God had touched him was now a set thing in his life. It was a set attitude. Something had happened. He needed to start. A wonderful thing about Joseph is this, that progressively he has to be carried. When before ever he was uh, just about to be born, he was grasping. He grasped his horse foot. When he was actually born and grew up, he stole Esau's birthright. A little later on, he stole the blessing from his father by deception, clothing himself with skins of calves 
in order that his father might be deceived. Then you remember, by sheer strength of character, natural character and ambition, he double-crossed his uncle and won all those flocks from him. When he came to Jabbok, he was touched. That was the point in his time. When he was touched, he could no longer do any of that. He started to limp, and he limped for the rest of his life. Toward the end of his life, there was a star. And there is one of the things of all is when he's dead, he's carried out into the land. The end is sheer dependence upon the Lord. That's worship. Real worship comes out of dependence on the Lord. When we can do things ourselves, we can't worship the Lord. When we can't do things ourselves but are thrust on the Lord, we start to worship. We begin to find a way through and we start to worship the Lord for what he is. This all comes out of Jabbok. You and I are faced with such a thing. We can be the Lord. We can come to the Lord. We can be the Lord. But there's one on one side we can just be the Lord's and that's that. On the other we can go on into a way which in the end sooner or later will bring us to a place where we're broken of everything. We're wrecked of everything. That's got to happen if the character of the Lord Jesus is going to be reproduced in us. But once that character is reproduced the story is a different one. It's a story of the grace of God. <coughs> it's the increasing service and in the end it's worship.